0: Open your Bible with me to Judges chapter 9. I'd like this morning to look at the first part of this story and uh, draw a couple of lessons from it. Judges chapter 9. And Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and spoke to them and to the whole clan of the household of his mother's father, saying, Speak now in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that 70 men, all the sons of Jeroboam, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Also remember that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, and they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our relative." And they gave him 70 pieces of silver from the house of Baal-barith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows, and they followed him. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem and all Bethmilo, assembled together, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar, which was in Shechem. It's the beginning of uh, our story, and uh, we need to really remember something about the context of this story, that in the previous three chapters, God had raised up Gideon to deliver the people from the Midianite oppression, and he did that with humility and dependence on God, but then he let the power and the success he had go to his head, and he became prideful. And we looked last week at several mistakes that he made. In Judges chapter 8, the men of Israel came to him and offered to make him king. Says, rule over us, because you delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon in 8.23 speaks well. He said, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Now, that was a good thing, but he didn't act like it. He asked everybody to give some of their jewelry to him, and he made an ephod that became an object of idol idolatry. And he uh, got himself a big harem, And had 70 sons, and then a concubine, evidently a Canaanite concubine, that bore him the son Abimelech, that we're reading about here. And so what you see is, in chapter 9, Gideon's sins bearing fruit, so to speak. His sins of the relationship he had with his concubine give birth to Abimelech, who ends up being an egotistical tyrant, his making the ephod, leading the people into idolatry in the last part of chapter 8, his kingly actions, his his kingly style, sort of paving the way for Abimelech just to go ahead and seek the kingship. And so what you read in chapter 9 is of Abimelech, the son of the concubine, who decides that he wants to become king. He's had no call from God nor man. He more or less is campaigning for the office. And even though Gideon had said in 823, I won't rule over you nor will my son, Gideon's actions spoke louder than his words. And and Gideon's son Abimelech tries to become king. Now what he does is he more or less campaigns he tells the men of Shechem that it would be better for one person, him, to rule over them than all 70 sons of Gideon, or Jerubbaal, as the other name of Gideon was. And, uh, you know, you can imagine what confusion and chaos there might be if you had 70 guys all trying to be the king. Now, as far as I can tell from the text, there's no particular indication that those 70 other sons of Gideon were trying to become king. But, you know, bad men generally measure other people by themselves. He assumed that the self-seeking that was a characteristic of himself would also be the way his brothers would act untrustworthiness breeds suspicion. And when we're not acting honestly and honorably, we can pretty well imagine that we're going to think other people won't too. I think it's very telling that he just assumes that his brothers would politic to become king just like he was doing. And so he also argues that it's better for him to become their king since he was the son of a Canaanite woman. he had more uh, family ties with the city of Shechem than what they did. And so he, he's, he's kind of playing up that idea. And so they agree. And they take 70 shekels of silver, 70 pieces of silver from the house of their idol god Baal and give it to Abimelech who goes out and hires a bunch of thugs who round up his 70 brothers and he butchers them, kills them on a single stone, one after another, I guess chopping off their head or or stabbing them in the heart or whatever he did and uh, he kills them all except for one. There was one the youngest brother, Jotham, that manages to hide himself and escape, but the rest of them are all killed, and Abimelech has himself declared king. You thought that the kingship began with Saul, but uh, in one sense, Abimelech was the first king of something. Now, it's not real clear to me exactly how far his kingship extends. I would suggest to you that As often in the Judges, they were not necessarily the the deliverers of the whole nation of Israel. They're probably he wasn't the king, or even acknowledged as the king of the whole nation. Maybe just over the uh, left-hand side of the tribe of Manasseh, or at least in that general area. But at any rate, over whatever territory he manages to claim, he has himself proclaimed king, and he's uh, very happy about that. Now what we'll see... Over the course of this chapter is that uh, Abimelech sort of gets the people he deserves to reign over. And I think the people sort of get the king that they deserve. And uh, some of that will become clear in this uh, lesson and uh, the rest of it perhaps in uh, on next Sunday. In verse 7 then, now when they told Jotham, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and called out. Thus he said to them, Listen to me, O men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go to wave over the trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, You come, reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I, leave, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go to wave over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, you come reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my new wine, which cheers God and man and go to wave over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the bramble, you come rain over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you're anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you have dealt in truth and integrity in making Abimelech king, and if you've dealt well with Jerubbaal and his house and have dealt with him as he deserved... For my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. But you have risen against my father's house today and have killed his son's 70 men on one stone. And have made Abimelech the son of his maidservant king over the men of Shechem because he's your relative. If then you've dealt in truth and integrity with Jerubbaal and his house this day, rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not... Let fire come out from Abimelech and consume the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham escaped and fled and went to Beer, And remained there because of Abimelech, his brother. So, the youngest son of Gideon, the one who escaped, Jotham. He goes to Mount Gerizim, which is kind of an interesting place for him to go. Mount Gerizim was the mountain of the blessings that the people would pronounce. It was Mount Ebal on uh, the north that was the mountain of the curse. It might have been more appropriate in some ways if he'd have been on the curse mountain. But he goes to Mount Gerizim and he, he basically hollers out to the men of Shechem. Shechem was in the valley between those two mountains. And uh, so they could all hear him and he tells them a little story, a little fable, I think we might call it, or a Parable about how the trees all decided, they got together and decided they wanted to make a king over them. And so they first go to the olive tree. They tell the olive tree, listen, we'd like for you to be king over us. But rather than uh, selfishly anointing itself with the oil of kingship, the olive tree says, no, I'm just doing too much important and positive to spend my time being king. Over you, so they went to the fig tree. Why don't you be fi- king over us? The fig tree said, "Oh, you know, I'm, I'm all the sweet figs and so forth that I'm producing. That's, that's more important. I, I don't want to, to be king. No." So they go to the vine, and the vine said, "Well, you know, I, I've got these grapes that are so good for for men and everybody likes, and all. I, I'm doing things that are just too important. I, I don't, I, I don't want to accept the kingship." So finally, the trees all decide to go to the bramble bush. And they asked him to be king over them. Well, the bramble's uh, response to this was quite different. The bramble bush rather uh, ironically says, If you're making me king, then come and take refuge in my shade. Now, I think that's intended by Jothan to be rather humorous. Uh, there's not a whole lot of shade offered by a bramble bush. And if you did manage somehow to worm your way under it, you'd probably skin yourself up right good with the the thistles and prickly part of the bramble. And the bramble not only, uh, ironically, says, yes, I'll be king and take refuge in my shade. He says, if you don't, I'll burn you up. So he accepts the kingship with a sort of tyrannical, dictatorial, arrogant spirit. Because, you know, the bramble didn't have anything better. You know, he, he wasn't, uh, productively occupied with anything else. And that's the point that Jotham is making with this parable. That the people who want to be the kings, who want to be the dictators, the people who want to run everything, are the people who aren't doing anything worthwhile. They don't have any useful, productive activities. And so they do want to be the leaders. But the people who have real dignity and value, they're not anxious to leave the productive things they're doing for the doubtful honor of waving over the people as king. Ironically, it's the people who are the least fit to lead who are the most ambitious. The people who are the least qualified and who have the least to offer who oftentimes seek The glory of high position the most. And that spirit has not changed from Jotham's day to now. So, Jotham says, have you guys really done the right thing? Have you honored the memory of Gideon properly? By killing Gideon's 70 sons and making... The son of the concubine, Abimelech, came over you. And he says, if you haven't, then may fire come from Abimelech and destroy you, and may fire come from you and destroy Abimelech. That was a remarkable prophecy, because that will ultimately be exactly what happens. They deserved each other, and they managed to ultimately mutually destroy each other. But I'd like to break off the story at this point. We'll conclude that next week. And draw a couple of lessons that I think are important from this story. And I'd like for you to think about each of these uh, a little bit. We mentioned how Gideon, in my view, had laid the seeds for Abimelech to act like he was acting. And for the terrible atrocities that occurred to have occurred in the land. And the lesson that I want you to think about is that your kids will probably be a lot like you. Only they'll take the mask off. You know, Gideon acted like a king, but he at least said he didn't want to be king. He he, he denied the crown itself, even though in his attitude and in, in in his bearing he was very kingly. Well, Abimelech just goes a step further. He has the same attitude Gideon does, without the. Uh, you know, social niceties of it. He he just flat out tries to be king. And that's often the way our kids will be. You know, they'll be a lot like we are, except they may not do it so politely. The one thing about our kids is they see a lot more of us than anybody else does. They don't just see us at church or in a Bible study. Our kids see us, our life at home. They see us when we're with our friends. They probably know a lot about how we are when we're at work. They see the parts of us that we try to hide from everybody else. And just think about how often kids are a lot like their parents, only they don't do it so uh, respectfully. You take parents, for example, that drink heavily. Who go around shaking their finger at their kids saying, I don't want you to ever touch any drugs. Don't you ever, don't ever let me catch you on drugs. Well, they see the parents addicted to a certain kind of drug, alcohol, and a whole lot of kids in those situations end up doing the very thing their parents have done, only they just take it to the next step. They use illegal drugs, as well as the legal ones, to get inebriated on. Or you take parents who teach their children that when you're around respectable people, you don't use bad language. But if you're in other contexts, they see their parents doing that. And they realize their parents would never, around church people or somebody like that, use that kind of language, but they know that when they're at home or or with certain kinds of friends or whatever they do, well, you know what kids often do. They don't see any particular reason to make that distinction. If it's okay to use that kind of language in certain contexts, they're just going to use it all the time and embarrass their parents around more respectable people. They They copy the actions. They just take the mask off. Or you may take parents who... Are involved in sexually immoral activities, and uh, they may not do. They may do it in a, in, a, in a way that society approves of. You know, they may be lawfully divorced by society's standards and uh, remarried, that the Bible calls adultery. But they tell their children, "Now, don't you ever let me catch you, you know, with some girl or whatever." Well, they see the immorality of their parents. And they may do it in a a respectable way by society, but but often the kids just go a step further. They're, They're willing to break some of society's norms as well in being immoral. Or think about this. Our kids see us being dishonest. Now, we may be dishonest just in little white lies. You know, tell them I'm not home or whatever. But our kids see no particular reason to limit it to that. They're going to be dishonest, maybe taking something that doesn't belong to them or lying in ways that are more destructive. But our kids are Im- imitating us. Think about our temper. You know, when we lose our temper at home, become impatient, we yell and say things we shouldn't say. Then we turn around and see our kids doing the same thing and we shouldn't do that. Well, our kids probably will imitate how we behave at home. Or think about our lack of emphasis on spiritual things. If our kids don't ever, if our kids know that we don't ever study the Bible or we don't ever pray or at least not very often oh, maybe when we've got something we're supposed to do up front at church well now, it's going to be very likely they're going to follow them. I'm not saying all kids have to follow their parents. There are a lot of Examples in the Bible where you had some bad parents with good kids. But don't be surprised if our kids do the same things we do. If if our kids see that when something else comes up, we'll just skip going to church to do whatever it is that has come up. And then we turn around and they get a little bit older and, and well, they don't want to go to church. And we're like, but, but I don't understand that. Well, we ought to understand that. They saw it didn't mean very much to us. Or maybe we just went when somebody was pressuring us to go. Or or they or they knew when we came, we were whispering to each other, we were doing all sorts of things, and we didn't pay any attention. Well, for them, what's the use of even going? Or they see that we're materialistic. They see that our real love is getting money and stuff, and we're willing to do anything to do that, well, now they'll just take that to the next step. And you can just fill in the blanks. Think about how children end up following the trail of their parents. They just don't do it in such a respectful way. It seems to me that Abimelech had just learned well from Gideon. He just took the mask off. The other lesson I'd like for us to learn, and I think this is an important one, is that leaders should be servants. You know, the three trees that were doing so much good, they were concerned about serving men, not having authority. If we're busy serving as leaders, we won't be too concerned about being the boss. Think about some examples in the Bible. You remember the, the advice that Rehoboam got? The old men said, Be a servant to the people as their king, and they'll follow you. And the young men said, You tell them Solomon was nothing. They ought to see how tough you'll be on him. Guess what? He'd have been a whole lot better off if he'd have chosen the route of serving as king. Instead of flexing his kingly muscles and showing him he could tell him what to do. Think about Mark chapter 10. You know, the disciples just struggled with that over and over and over again. And there's a lot of passages like this. But Mark 10 verse 42, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know, that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Leadership in God's kingdom is service. It's not position and dictatorship. Think about Moses, one of the greatest leaders God's people ever had. And you know what Numbers 12.3 says about him? He was the meekest man on the face of the earth. We would say, oh, a guy like that can't be a leader. (laughs) You know, he's too meek. Well, he was. He's the one God chose. Think about Paul. I'm impressed by the book of Philemon. because, Because Paul's encouraging Philemon to accept his runaway slave, now converted Christian Onesimus, back. And he says, you know, I could order you to do that, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I'm just appealing to you to do the right thing. And uh, Paul could have ordered it. He was an apostle of Christ. But Paul did not approach leadership on the basis of laying down edicts, but on the basis of service. Now think about how that ought to apply to us in our leadership. God requires us to be leaders in certain relationships, like husbands. You know, husbands are supposed to be the heads of the wife. But you know what God commands husbands? I don't recall God commanding husbands to make their wives submit. Do you recall that command? I recall God telling husbands to love their wives. And in fact, Ephesians 5, that talks about the husband-wife relationship, practices that with submitting to one another in the fear of God. The wives submitting to the leadership of their husbands, (coughs) and the husbands submitting to do the best thing for their wives as they love them. And Jesus presented the example. The one who gave himself, sacrificed his own desires for the sake of his wife. I understand there's a leadership role. The husband ought to be the place where the buck stops, but not so that he can run things but so that he can serve to the betterment of his family. Think about parents. Ephesians 6 talks about how we're to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but we're not to provoke them to wrath. <coughs> Parenting is a tough thing. And there's certainly, with younger children, discipline required. Proverbs teaches that. But, you know, if we're not careful, it becomes just sort of the tug of war. I tell you to do it, and you'd better do it. And, and we can probably make them do it, but we can't make them want to. We can't make them do it from the heart. So much better is discipline and nurture that leads our children to want to please God and to come to respect and serve. That's a, that's a delicate balance, but it's probably not served by parents who see leadership as just the ability to get our own way. As opposed to service. Think about elders. In a congregation. First Peter 5 talks about how elders are not to become dictators. That's not the way they're supposed to exercise their leadership. You know authority can go to your head. I remember in one of the churches that I was a part of several years ago. That had really good elders. One of the things the elders would come before the congregation and say. Very openly at times. Is this is not our church. You know, this is, this is, we're all a part of this group. It's not up to us simply to, to lay down the edicts as to what this church will do. It's something we're all involved with. I can remember when in that church they, they needed to add on to the building. The elders went to the deacons and said, you guys just do that. We don't want to know anything about it. You, you all have been selected by the church to, uh, to serve. And so you guys do whatever you think ought to be done in adding on to the building. And that was that. You know, elders, the point is not that they get to run everything, but that they serve the sheep to help them grow. Now, there's a lesson for us, I think, in terms of who we want to lead, who we look to to lead. The trees made a mistake, they went to the bramble. And it hurt him. And the people of Shechem made a mistake. They they had <laughs> elected Abimelech. And it hurt them. Who are the people we really look up to and admire? There is an element or there's a there's a nerve in us that really looks up to the top guy. The, to the guy who throws his weight around. To the guy who's not gonna let anybody tell him what to do. We kind of admire that, don't we? I'm impressed with 3 John, the part we haven't gotten to yet in 3 John, uh, in the Sunday morning class. He contrasts Diotrephes and Demetrius. In verses 9 and 10 of 3 John, Diotrephes, now he, he ran everything. It was his church and he told people where to get off. And uh, he told a lot of them to get off. Demetrius, on the other hand, verse 12, he has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself And we also bear witness, and you know that our witness is true. And in the middle between those two, Diotrephes and Demetrius, verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Who should we look up to and follow? The guy who acts like the big shot or the guy who serves? You know, if you want to be popular as a kid, show off, be tough, throw your weight around. Let let everybody know no always going to mess with you. And you know, there's a whole lot of us that when you see somebody like that, it's like, whoa, that's me. I wish I could be like that. What we need is to look at Jesus, to look at Moses, to look at Paul, to look at those who saw leadership as an opportunity to serve, to be humble, to help others, they selected the wrong kind of leader. <laughs> they selected Abimelech. They made him king. But the rest of chapter 9 will show that was a bad decision on their part. And it will come back to haunt them. So two lessons from this. Children will often, often be like their parents. And leaders should be servants. If you're willing to follow the Lord this morning and serve him, he's the best leader you could ever follow. He'll help. He loves you. And he'll do what's best for you. If you need to obey the gospel, won't you come when we stand inside?